Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Welcome everyone to the Emerging Voices podcast. This is episode 15 and we are here with 2018 Emerging Voices fellow Juby Ariola Headley. Thanks for joining us, Juby. Thank you for having me and for asking me to do this. I'm very excited. If you're in Miami, so I don't get to see you yeah. anyway. So one thing that I will say, a silver lining of the pandemic and us kind of and the world coming to a screeching halt is that, you know, we get to see each other virtually in a way we wouldn't normally because we live so far away. It's very true. I have been saying to any number of people that I feel like our connections are strengthening in a certain way because we're forced to find new ways to reach out and care about what's happening with each other. It's heightened because of COVID and because racism and because a million things right now. But also, I've also been able to make connections with people that I might not normally talk to half as much as I'm talking to now. So it's a little bit of a silver lining to what's an otherwise bizarre and crazy time. I feel like too, it's like we, that the human connection too feels like even more important or yeah. potent or powerful because yeah. there, there is almost this feeling like we could potentially lose it. Yeah. I think that's true. I do. I think there's so much weighing on all of us right now, whether we are thinking about COVID and how safe we and our fellow humans are being and whether we're thinking about, is it receding or is it raising? And we live in two challenging places. In California today, you just reinstituted a level of um, safeguarding that you thought you'd pass. And I live in South Florida where the cases have been rising, some would arguably say because of the inaction of our state government. So there's that, but also there's George Floyd and there's everything that's happened since George Floyd. And some of it's very gratifying, but it's also tense and scary in that sort of existential sense. Like, who are we as a nation going to be after this? So there's all of that. And there's the simple facts of things like, you know, I just thought about this this morning. I haven't hugged anybody in four months that hasn't been my husband. And I'm lucky I have a husband to hug. There are people who are by themselves in this. I don't know what they're doing. And, and those kinds of things, simple touch, you know, touch on the shoulder, how you doing? Those are important things. So it becomes even more important to do things like this, like Zoom, like reaching out by the telephone and text. We've kind of hold on to our connections to each other however we can, because this all could just it's exhausting is, is part of what it is. It's anxiety and it's enraging. And all of that, I don't know where it leaves us if we don't have each other to lean on, if that makes any sense. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just actually saying that last week to someone was like, I haven't hugged anyone. And also like being part of the literary world and you're going to events, it's <laughs> yeah. very much like you're hugging people all the time. It's yes. just kind of part of, the, of being in community. And it makes it just more important to do things like this and to really reach out to the people we care about and to try to make connections in more meaningful ways than I 
I can't speak for everybody, but I feel like there's a lot I took for granted that now is so precious. And I don't want that to sound trite, except there are people that normally I assume are okay unless I hear otherwise that I'm regularly checking in with and regularly saying, I care. I'm regularly saying, don't let me find out you needed something. There's nothing you could ask for that will be in, that will be too much. I might not have it, but that's not the same as you shouldn't ask. So we just got to be more intentional and deliberate about all this. I want to read your bio before we get too far into the oh. conversation. Okay. Um, Jewie Ariel, Ariola Headley is a black queer poet, storyteller, and first-generation United Statesian born to Bahan. Bajan. Beijing. <laughs> yes, it's okay. The first collection of poems, Original Kink, is forthcoming in October of this year from Sibling Rivalry Press. As I mentioned, Jubi was a 2018 Emerging Voices Fellow, a second-year MFA candidate in poetry. This is not updated. No, I've graduated now. You're right. Jubi has since graduated since he wrote this. An alumna of the Vona and Lambda Literary Writing Communities. I don't know what's going on with my phone. Jubi and his husband put their time between South Florida and Guatemala, where he hoped to pick up enough Spanish to figure out what his in-laws are saying about him. Yes. Let's talk. Let's go. Let's jump off that. Okay. What's going on with the in-laws? You're not able to see them, and I know you're real close. That actually is not the case. I see them all the time now. What happened? Here's what happened. Paolo's parents aren't getting any younger, as our parents aren't. And so his parents want to travel more now than they have in the past because time. So his parents asked Paolo, and Paolo generously helped out with this, to book them a trip to Spain. The trip to Spain was going to be a three-week trip, and it started like March 3rd. So about the time when Italy was falling apart and nobody was certain what was happening anywhere else. So nobody stopped them from boarding a plane. About March 10th, Spain shut down and they were there. And literally the museum shut down, the store shut down, they sent everybody into quarantine. And Paulo started freaking out about, how can I get my parents home? And it turned out home being Guatemala was not an option because Guatemala, about three days before they came back, said, we are closing our borders. And anybody who shows up here for any reason is subject to a 30-day quarantine in one hospital in the city. That sounded not like a safe situation to be in from a health perspective for two people over 75. So the other option Paulo had, because they're also U.S. citizens, was to fly them here. So my in-laws have been here since March 15th. I see them every Yep. So, and we only have a two-bedroom apartment. Thank God we have a two-bedroom apartment. So we converted the office into their bedroom. It's a little tight sometimes, but it works. My office is now the living room slash dining room. And so, like, right now they've gone on a walk, um, a socially distanced safe walk, while I do this taping so that they're not making noise in the background. The funny, maybe not that funny part of this, is that... I mentioned to my mother around the time this started that they were staying there and her reaction was like, oh, really? Great. Because my mother's in Boston and my sisters are nearby, but nobody's connecting excessively because COVID. So she would love to have somebody staying with her, but she lives alone. And my sisters are nearby, but she doesn't see them that often. So I detected a teeny little bit, I won't call it jealousy, but maybe wistfulness or or longing because 
the parents are here with their son and with me, and she would love to be in the same situation. She loves Paolo quite possibly more than me. And I say that with no bitterness at all. There are ways in which my mother and I sort of stretch each other's patience that Paolo is just fine with. I may get concerned about or upset with my mother about something, and Paolo has a way of just breaking down the elements that make me see it's not the issue I think it is. And she loves and adores him. So she he will listen to her talk for eight hours where I'm saying I'm going to bed, and they'll continue to drink cognac till 2, 3 a.m. So for her, it was a little bit of a maybe bitter pill to swallow that my in-laws get, as she might see it, to be here with me for four months, and she's not. So that's that story. <laughs> what do you think about, I actually just saw a Facebook post this morning from uh, Andrine, who used to be our development person at okay. Penn uh, yeah, yeah. in LA, and she was saying, she was kind of asking the question of what do we think it's going to look like on the other side of this? Like, what about like communal living for extended family members and, you know, breaking down those barriers as we see how far away we are from each other? What do you think of that? It's interesting. You know, I, I think that that will really need to be a more explored option. I think it already is in certain parts of the world. People, even here, I have a friend who lives in Honolulu who lives with four generations of her family. And for her, as I understand it, and for the people who live there, native, that's relatively common. It's not uncommon in a lot of countries I have friends that hail from. Um, and as we realize that, you know, making decisions like living 1,500 miles away from your parents can at any moment be present a crisis, we might have to think about how we build community more closely. So there's that part of our biological family and the people we love, but there's also chosen family. There are a lot of us who don't have that anymore or never really had it. How do we build families and communities where we can support each other so that we don't have one person? Even if you have a million friends, if they don't all live with you, maybe you're alone right now. Maybe you start to learn how to build community in ways where you and your best friends all live in a compound and share mutual expenses and responsibilities. There's more than one way to define and build a family. And I think going forward for financial reasons, but also for reasons of emotional health and community, it's going to make more and more sense. This is just a, a challenging, challenging time. And going through it alone, I can't imagine what it's like, but I don't want anybody I know to be in that situation. God forbid you this happen again. Well, jumping off that, let's yeah. talk about Baby Juby and, and his path to poetry and to being a writer. I, I've told my story, and it often feels not illegitimate, but not authentic enough. <laughs> Here's what I mean. I'll tell the story, and then you'll see. I don't have that story where I can tell you at eight years old, I had a journal. At eight years old, I knew I was going to be a writer. At eight years old, I was writing. I can tell you I was reading voraciously. I've always loved to read. I'm the kid that my mother would open the door at 1 a.m. when I was like nine and be like, why are you still up? Give me back my flashlight. Go the hell to sleep. So I've always been that kid. And when I went to college, I took a creative writing class that really excited me. And the professor, a writer who has since passed, the late David Louis, God rest his soul, 
saw some promise in me and gave me some mild encouragement, and it made me think maybe I could be a writer. So there's a writing seminar for seniors. Every senior who was an English major, and I was an English major at my alma mater, had to take a senior seminar for a year, the entire senior year. And one of them, only one of them was creative writing. And whether you were a poet or a nonfiction writer or a fiction writer, you went into that seminar. And so I applied for it and didn't get it. And I don't know if it's I hadn't had enough exposure to writers or I hadn't had enough exposure to writers that look like me, but my brain literally processed that as if I was meant to write, I would have been accepted. Therefore, I guess I meant to write. That held for roughly 20 years. There was always longing somewhere deep down. Every so often, it would be stronger than others. But I was always scared. So I put all of my effort into being a great writer at the various and many nonprofit political and social justice organizations I work for. And I've always been told, write beautifully, but I wrote op-eds and reports and news articles, poetically, I guess. So that all worked until I hit about 45. And then, actually, maybe a little earlier, my early 40s, it just bubbled up and I, it felt like it was manifesting in a way that it refused to be tamped down anymore. And I felt this need to write a book about my father. And that is what somehow I wrapped this all around. I have to write a book about my father, who had died 20 years before. I tried to write his nonfiction because I thought that's what it wanted to be. And it wasn't bad nonfiction, but it wasn't sparkling in the way you want the best nonfiction to be. And a friend of mine about six or seven years ago now said, why don't you take a poetry class? And I laughed and thought that was silly, but also I thought nothing's working. This is not being what I want it to be. What can it hurt? And I took that poetry class and I fell in love and I wrote this group of poems and I showed them to some people who were probably very generous with me and didn't say, this is utter shit, stop. What they said is, keep going. You have some beautiful lines. If you want to write poetry, you should write poetry. And someday we'll talk about the economics of writing and how there isn't a system that necessarily supports it the way maybe some other fields in the world support it, which I say because what I saw my mission as once I was encouraged in poetry is to take literally every poetry workshop I could find online. I took some classes at UCLA Extension even before I had been accepted for the Penn Fellowship. I went to Vona. I went to Lambda. I spent thousands of dollars to just try to be in creative writing spaces, in poetry spaces. I traveled to places to go to these workshops, spent money on hotels and the workshops themselves and food because I was driven. It felt like something that I was meant to do. It wasn't even a, I have to do this. It was, I was, I almost immediately went from, I don't know how to do this to I am doing this. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I am in the poetry moment. And that's kind of how I came to poetry. And by the time July 2017 came around, I'd had enough encouragement that I thought to myself, I'm going to apply for this fellowship. And Kieran Khan, we all love her, me about this fellowship. She's also a former Vona fellow. And I said, the worst that can happen is I won't get it, but I might get in. And she sings its praises as if it changed her life. And so I'm going to apply. And I applied without telling my husband because I did not know how I was going to explain to him, I love you, but I'm going to Los Angeles for eight months. And I'm pretty sure you can't come with me because 
your life doesn't work that way. So please don't think this is me running away, but I absolutely need to do this. And then you called me and I was like, oh, fuck. I guess I need to tell him now because this is semi-serious. And even if I don't get it at this point, why am I going to L.A. for an interview? So I sort of said, hey, I kind of applied for this fellowship that I didn't think I'd get, but it seems like I'm a semifinalist. So I'm going to go do this interview and we can talk about it when I get back. And then I ran to the plane and the rest is kind of history. There are probably some more details, but that's my journey to writing. I tamped it down for years because the world I thought was telling me I shouldn't write. And then it got relentless and would not let me go. And I threw myself in and had probably the right combination of drive and luck and desire to write better and desire to get to know writers and desire to be, and I think this is is the most important thing, desire to be part of a writing community. I don't know how people do writing if they're not part of a writing community. People always talk about how writing is a solitary act. And yeah, when you're literally writing, it's a solitary act, but you workshop and you need somebody to give you feedback and you need people who also write to uplift you and to encourage you and to commiserate with you and to let you know how the process works and to introduce you to other writers. That's been just the biggest lesson for me that I'm part of a community of writers. And that's been, I think, what's helped propel me, especially at this crazy time, if I think about it. So that's kind of how I got to Penn. And if I hadn't gotten to Penn, I don't know, I, I might've got there somewhere else, but that's how I became a writer in the sense that I could say without timidity, I'm a writer. If it were for you and all the writers I met, and especially, as you know, I fell in love with my mentor, Douglas Manuel, the poet, I would not be saying I'm a writer. I would not be saying I'm a poet. Not at least in a way where I wasn't sort of looking away to the side and, and sort of wincing and waiting to see your reaction when I said it. You're like apologizing for Exactly. Saying I'm a poet. I know that sounds you know, silly, but yeah, I'm a poet, you know, with the up at the end, but now I'm a poet. That's what I do. And I am so happy that I have a book coming out, but I was a poet because of him. I would be saying that even if I didn't have a book coming out, I would just be a poet without a book yet. That's how I, I got wonder, here. We're going to go into with Doug and, and your experience uh, in the fellowship, but yeah. a, a jumping off point, I think, for the economics of being a writer and being yeah. a poet what do you think then about the possibility that the, the fellowship goes virtual, you know, for the foreseeable future? And that's what's happened, obviously, like everything else this year. But even going yeah. into 2021, like, doesn't it feel like it opens up possibilities to people who couldn't afford it? Yes. I have had, first of all, I've known people who have done pretty well, have actually gotten to be semifinalists, and then told me personally Yes, Juby, thank you for encouraging me. I would love to do this, but I can't figure out how to make the finances of relocating my life work. So I can see how it being virtual would help particularly people from outside the Los Angeles area. And because I feel like it was so transformative for me, I have these fantasies of how can it be Los Angeles-based and be fruitful for Los Angeles, but also extend some arms and reach into other cities and, and become national. Maybe an even, maybe double, but evenly split. So you have 
five Los Angeles people and five people from somewhere else. Because I fantasize like this because I, I love what it did for me and I want other people to have that opportunity. And we can talk about why, because there's some very specific reasons why. But I think I have been to reckon with the reality that virtual opportunities give us to more economical ways of, of connecting and reaching out with each other. And it's not my ideal. I am a touchy-feely kind of person in the sense of in-person experiences, but that's not reality right now. So it's, it's this. And like you're saying, if you make the fellowship virtual, you have an opportunity to reach people that you wouldn't normally have the opportunity to reach. People who can't afford to relocate could still be a part of this amazing experience. South Florida or New York City or Boston or even San Francisco. Just, you know, you could expand it in more than one way because now you're not focused on physical presence as much. So I would think it would be a very good thing. I completely agree with what you're saying. I think that we do lose something from not being in person. Yeah. But when that's not an option anyway, like it's kind of off the table, so we shouldn't yeah. worry about it. Exactly. Know? Exactly. As I'm learning more, managing this fellowship and reading and listening, and there is an elite aspect to it by yeah. expecting people to come and in, uh, interview in person. Yeah. And like, yes, you do have to move. And like, no, we're only giving you this like very nominal fee yeah. or like stipend. Yeah. So, so it's definitely something to think about is like how we, if we really are targeting underrepresented, marginalized writers, exactly. like how do we increase the access exactly. to them? That being said, let's talk about your mentor and the relationship that developed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yes. Never online, but yeah. Abel Dougie. Yeah. But that's that even speaks to who he is as a person. I never talk to him because he's never online, so I never have an opportunity. If I want to reach Doug, I email him, and he responds when he can which is usually relatively timely, but my point is we don't talk that much. But the few times I've seen him since the fellowship, he's always that same warm, generous, utterly joyous person that just is happy to see you and wants to know how you're doing and if you need anything and is happy to think about how he can help you get that thing you might need. I don't know if there was... I don't know how you could have chosen a better mentor for me. It, my mentorship started off with... His, and you know him, he's bubbly, he's joyous. He started from a position of assuming I was going to be a writer. I was a writer and therefore I needed to write. So at the beginning, and I had some poems, I don't even know how many pages I had, but it didn't feel like it was substantial at the time we started. But he said, by the end of this fellowship, you'll have written 40 new pages of poetry. And he just said it like it was a statement of fact that I was like, what, 40 pages? He's like, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, 40. He's like, why do you think you can do more? I'm like, no, 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 no. 40 is fine. He was not wrong. I don't know why or how I did it other than I'm a writer. That's what writers do. But I did it. And he was so encouraging along the way. And he also taught me how to think about critiquing poetry. Not only my own poetry, but other people's poetry. I think through him, I learned not only how to think about writing poetry, but how to think about talking about A, writing poetry and B, other people's poetry. So... I've been able, and he also taught me how to be a generous mentor. I will say that since Doug, I have been more committed to helping people in probably not as profound ways as I think he helped me, but I'm always ready to read somebody's poetry and give them 
the benefit of what I think I have to offer. If they if they're applying to grad school and want me to read it or they wonder what I think of this poem they're about to submit, I am happy to do that because I think that's my responsibility based on the fact that I received such excellent mentorship. So those are the things I got out of it. I couldn't I, I couldn't have dreamed that experience. And I didn't know that day one, but at the end, I knew what I was moving out of and I was ready in the sense that he prepared me and the fellowship prepared me. But I was also sad because it's just an amazing thing to have in your corner. That level of leadership, that level of you can do this, that level of, yes, you, you, Juby, need to do it, but I'm going to be here. Any questions, any fears, any missteps, let's talk and figure out how we can get you through it to where you need to be. Amazing. That was my favorite part of the fellowship. And I loved every part of the fellowship, but that was my favorite part. The men At the beginning of this, you said he knew I was going to be a writer. And yeah. I would say that's not true. He knew you were a writer. Like, he recognized you as a peer. And I yeah. think that is really important. Like, it's yeah. still a, a teacher-student relationship. Yeah. But to have that level of respect yeah. is so... It makes you feel like, you know, you are you have kind of arrived to some extent. Yeah. Um, and he was really great. So you meet three times in person. Mm -hmm. Walk us through one of your in-person meetings and what he expected of you, too, because it was kind of great. Well, our in-person meetings were usually pretty production-oriented. So I had 40 pages to accomplish by the end. By our first in-person meeting, I needed 15 pages of new poetry. So I don't know why, but it was not ever... A situation where I showed up and I had had to rush to get there. So I just was writing because I needed to be writing and just giving him stuff. And we would sit there and go through the poems. And we always met at the same. And for whatever reason, he was actually he was willing to come to me because, as you know, he was a Ph.D. candidate at USC. And where I was staying was not far from the campus. It was on that expo line. So we would meet at a certain Starbucks and he would sit there and go through my poems and I would have sent them to him in advance, and he would tell me what he thought line by line. And then we would just talk about the poetry world and things that were happening and what I was reading and what I thought about what I was reading. So it was, you know, we would spend about two hours, maybe, and it depended on the, on the time, but it would break down between let's look at your poetry, what you've produced, and what's going on in the poetry world, and what's going on with you, and how's the fellowship working, and how are you finding L.A., and... So it became this whole camaraderie thing where at the end, one of us would jump up and go, oh, I got to go. But it was never forced or hard. That's one of the valuable things about the fellowship. We need to produce, but it's not produced in a way that worry about some benchmark other than quantity. Nobody saying this is going to be graded. And if this isn't good enough, here's what happens. You have that, that weight lifted off your shoulders. Just write what you need to write, what you're inspired to write. And let's talk about how that makes a poem, A, and then how B, it can make a better poem. So that's a wonderful way to be able to talk about your writing, where you're just, I want to write about X, and well, write about X, and then let's talk about it. You don't have to worry about what people think about quality, because that's one of the biggest challenges as that time before I thought I was a writer. That's one of the biggest challenges that was in my head getting over letting people read my work and thinking it was utter crap. I had to let that go. You have to be willing to write crap in order to get to good. And 
it's really liberating to be able to think, you know, not just they're not going to judge me harshly if I if I'm going to write crap. It's okay that I didn't write the most amazing thing today because that's part of the process of being a writer. Some days you write, you know, um, a masterpiece. Occasionally, when that spark hits, you write something where you pat yourself on the back and you're like, wow. And you get that little smile and you're like, I did good today. But that's not most days. Part of learning to be a writer is learning that it is the writing and the writing is not always at the level you want. But B, revision is key. Writing is much is, is much about, to me now, now, revision is it is that original putting things down on paper or for me, you know, typing things into the computer. I've had to learn that revision is really the work. And I love revision now, but at first I didn't understand how important it was. And I think that's something else I got from you. So that's what we work on primarily. Let's see how this poem is. Here are some lines that sing. Here are some lines that don't. Here's some passages that are confusing. What is it you're trying to do? Let's talk about how you can get to what you're trying to do. It was just wonderful. In 2017, Soleil David was our single poet. Yes. And we do evaluations every year at the end of the fellowship. And we really take into account what we're told, how we can improve, mm -hmm. things we can lose, things we can add. And, you know, Soleil basically told us that uh, we need to up our game as far as the poetry uh, offerings went. We adjusted the master class so that you were in the class with F. Doug Brown and yeah. other master poets. Yeah. You know, some of the some of whom had uh, gotten to the interview round for yeah. the fellowship as well and weren't awarded, yeah. but really curated your fellowship experience. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you saw, you talked to Carl Phillips, Ricky Laurentis, Dennis Smith, uh, Jeffrey Davis, and, and also you and Doug Manuel, you know, have similar themes in your work with regards to, to family and fathers and um, very personal subject matter. How does that like really curate experience compare to your MFA experience that you like immediately went into? You yeah. kind of left in August and like started class in Miami. MFA experiences, from what I can tell now in retrospect, are so divergent in terms of their quality and in terms of what I think people are expecting. There might be, there might be on earth an MFA that works on teaching you how to professionalize as a writer, how to be a part of the writing community. And I don't know who from the University of the Miami is going to be listening to this podcast. And I love my University of Miami experience, but it wasn't geared, at least in the way I experienced it, in the way this was. We do, or did at the University of Miami, have regular readings where well-regarded uh, poets would come and read and then do craft classes with us the day after they read. But... There wasn't a curated one-on-one. -on -one. Here is what you as a poet seem to be about. Let's put you in contact with people who will help you access different aspects of that on the phone for 30 to 45 minutes of conversation just about whatever you are smart enough to ask them and see what you get out of it. And again, I don't know. There might be these programs out there, but I haven't run into a lot of people who have had that curated experience. And I don't know how much MFA programs build community. I don't know how much, I mean, because beyond you putting me on the phone with Carl Phillips, how many people get to talk to Carl Phillips in person? 
Inez Smith, who literally was that year up for the National Book Award. And Laurentis and Jeffrey Davis, who's a professor at a totally different university, has his own concerns, but took time for me on the phone. And how would I have met Chi Wan Choi and all of these, and and not only the, the poets, but the nonfiction and fiction writers that I met. So part of what the fellowship does is build community too and introduce you to all these writers who are like, hey, welcome. Whatever you've been through, one of us has also been through and you can lean on us and ask us questions to figure out how to get through whatever it is you think you're going through at any time. You're not part of us. That's a wonderful thing. I didn't get that in out of my MFA program. I mean, I feel like I was part of a community. I feel like I loved them, but it wasn't a broad network of writers. I can reach back to my professors, I'm sure, anytime and ask them questions. But it's not quite the same level of plugging you in. Um, and South Florida, despite the fact that there are three MFA programs, does not have a lot of synergy between them. They don't talk. And there are other organizations that do poetry work that do talk to various aspects of them, but it doesn't feel as cohesive. And I think that's one reason I fell in love with the Los Angeles literary community. I'm sure there are other ways I could have been introduced that I might not have been connected as well. But the fellowship kind of just introduced me in a way where I got real connected to people who were willing to connect me to other people. Like Iwan or Daniel Lisi. You know, through Chiwan, I think, is how I met Bridget Bianca. I adore her, and I'm pretty sure I could call her up and ask her for something, because now we each other like that. And through the fellowship, I met pre not only the folks in my cohort, but I met previous fellows, like Irene Suico-Soriano. The MFA program was different. I'm older. When I went into the MFA program, I was 48 years old. And all I wanted out of it was more space to write the book that you and Daniel and Doug Kearney convinced me I could write if I wanted to. I literally went like, I'm gonna come out of here with funded support to write the book I wanna write. And that is literally my focus, was my focus throughout that program. I don't know that everybody goes into their MFA with that literal laser sense of focus on a solitary thing. So I don't know what they get out of it. I got out of it what I felt I needed, but if you're a different stage or kind of writer, I I sometimes think that MFA programs could probably benefit from a model where they do the kinds of things that the Emerging Voices Fellowship tries to do. You know what I mean? I, I think, too, it's, a, it's an issue of capacity. I was mm. talking to Julia Callahan yesterday, and it's why aren't we going out in search of talent and yeah. stories that we haven't heard before? And it's yeah. like, well, if everybody's working like a 40-hour work week already, and you know it's more than that usually, yeah. especially when you're, you know, in whatever industry. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the reason, too, that, that we're able to target so well is because there are only five fellows per year, you know? That and it's true. like there were even 10, there's less. Yeah. Chance that you're getting that kind of curated experience. Yeah. And even going to 2019, 2020, we weren't able to make as many connections with the poets just because we lost staff and, and you know, other things were happening in yeah. the restructuring of the organization. Yeah. And so, like, I could see, like, how would they do that in an MFA program? There's just these students. That's a good point. My program was relatively small, so, but it was also. In my humble opinion, they might differ, although I don't think they would. It was not superbly funded. And even when MFA programs are superbly funded, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but poetry doesn't tend to be the side that gets the funding because poetry isn't the side that generates income in the real world. So you're right. 
My program was small, but not rich. So I don't know what they could have done anyway. But you're right. The University of Iowa's of the world and a lot of other programs don't have eight poetry students entirely. They have 20 or 40 or more over two or three years. And to I've heard of programs where the way workshop works is you get workshop, if you're lucky, two or three times a semester. Um, and that wasn't my experience because I'm a poet. And there were literally six people first year and second year in my in my workshops and in my craft classes. So we all workshopped every week that we workshopped. But that's a small program. In a big program, you can get lost. And sometimes who gets workshopped is who's perceived to have done better work. So there's that too. You might workshop if you're not able to write something that stands out enough that week. And, uh, you know, again... What has been of great value to me is I workshop whether or not I turned in shit that week or I turned in the next Ross Capo. So, and I partially picked it for that because I had a sense going in. I knew what I needed and what I wanted to do. And I wanted a program where I wasn't one of 50 because I wasn't going to train in the MFA. I was going to write a book. I know everybody does what Juby does in terms of my MFA programs. I applied at the same time as Emerging Voices. So there was a universe where I could have just done Emerging Voices and not worried about grad school. But I thought of it because I was getting in about the time the program was ending. I thought of it as, oh, I can extend this wonderful thing I've just begun. I have two more years to get through it. So that's how I did it. But that's not, I think, how most people go in. And so they don't get out of it anything like what the Emerging Voices does or anything. I'm not even sure people are that clear on what they need going in. I see that. So let's talk about this book. Okay. Like, how did you know that you wanted to write a book about your father? What? Why was that the impetus? So we're doing a therapy session now? Okay. You know I write yeah. PNF. Yes, that's true. I had not the most wonderful relationship with my father, and I was always conflicted about it. And I am a man whose father died the first month he was in college. I was 18. And this was in the late 80s when there weren't things like gay-straight alliances in high school or, you know, Facebook or acceptance or Grindr, I, I, I didn't have the benefit of some of the things people have now where we hope that folks are more able to come out in a way that is supported. I say all that to say my father was very traditional and very Caribbean in a way that I often wonder whether we'd have a relationship now if he were still alive. Because I am very clear on what he thought about homosexuality. Somehow the universe or the society we live in gives folks opportunities to make it clear how they feel about gay people all the time, whether or not it seems relevant to the situation. You know, I remember instances where my father would get along and joke with somebody that I'm pretty sure just from signals, was very gay. And then pull me aside and say, if that man ever tries to touch you, you let me know. So I grew up with all these messages of gay as perversion. That's how, even though my father was friendly, that's clearly how we thought of it. And so between that and his need to be the star in the room, his the volume of his personality, for lack of a better way to put it, his need to be macho, his need to be a man's man, he was always the one who was a man's man. He didn't cry. His friends could lean on him. 
He was the ride or die guy. He was the leader. That's who he wanted to be. And he was also a very imposing man. He was 6'5 and 260 pounds, at least. So he was just that guy with the big personality and the big voice and the macho. And he was very clear that I shouldn't, as a boy, be doing girls' tests. This is the kind of environment I grew up in. And is it the worst environment? No. But it's also not one that's conducive to a little gay boy who wants to be enlightened in 2020 because of that gay man. So I had been wrestling with this for decades. And as I just got older and wiser and tried to learn more about other folks, I realized some of the prejudices I held were formed way back then. And so I was like, I need to write through this. I, if, but at that time, I was starting from a place of rage. I was like, I need to write about what my father did to me. And what I learned through classes, through other writers, through the process of just writing, and I think poetry helped me do this, is that you've got to, A, acknowledge the good in them as well as the challenging, but B, also acknowledge the villain in yourself. And I was just, I think that's why when I told you my nonfiction was flat, I was writing out of anger. I was writing all the wrong things he'd done to me. Poetry either required or enabled, maybe both, required and enabled me to get into a space where I was like, I need to be in that man's head and see what he was thinking when he said these things. I need to take an external perspective, external to my experience as a child, and see, be able to look objectively and say what was good and bad about this. And honestly, that changed the book because the book became still partially about my father, but my father as part of the building blocks of defining what I learned as masculinity and then what I unmade to make my own masculinity. So rather than writing a book about my dad, I wrote a book about masculinity. And how do you write a book about masculinity as a black man who's a gay man living in 2020 in the United States without writing about how your father influenced you when you grew up with him? It totally, going to poetry, writing more, probably more, just... That's part of the volume of writing. When you write more, you're required to think more. So I was able to get to a place where I was like, this is not a book about my dad. This is a book about learning how to be the kind of person you want to be and what that manifesto looks like and putting it down on paper and trying not to be afraid to do so. And also owning your own shit. You're meaning me. How did you feed into this? How did you hold on to shit you didn't need to hold on to? Can you be vulnerable on the page and admit that this enraged you and you wanted to hurt someone or this broke you and you hate being vulnerable in front of people? But if you're going to move forward with the work and make the work have meaning, you've got to share that. I, I took a, a workshop with Willie Perdomo, another poet, when I was at Vona, and he always said, write the hard poem. And I've literally taken that to heart. I try to throw everything on the page. And... All of the poems in that book are my best effort to throw everything on the page. And I honestly don't get a lot of point of writing a poem that, whatever its topic, I'm not trying to be as transparent about it as possible, as honest about it as possible. Truth is a is a fuzzy thing, and the way you play with fiction and metaphor and poems makes truth a hard thing to... I mean, essential truths are more important than literal facts. I'm always trying to get to something that is deeper than I want to share. Because if I'm not doing that, then it never sings. That's what I've learned. Jeff was on the podcast pretty early on, like in the first few mm -hmm. episodes. And, mm -hmm. and he 
said something that stuck with me was, you know, we tell ourselves the stories that we can live with. Not that we make it up. Yeah. Not that it's not true, but it's like, we tell, and, and as we mature and learn new things, those stories evolve yeah. with us. It's true. So how, sorry, how did this collection end up at Sibling Rivalry? They were the first ones to accept it. I took a, <clears throat> excuse me, I took the position that I was going to send it to anyone that might publish it. So I, again, luck, I don't have as many rejection stories as some people do, but I credit that to my singular drive and my luck in getting into right programs at the right time. So I had about 20 rejections, but at least two of them prior to Sibling Rivalry were encouraging rejections. Someone told me I was a finalist at their contest, although they didn't publicize that. So for whatever it was worth, I, I didn't have any notoriety with that, but I at least had the sense that they thought it was strong. Between December of 2018, because based on what I brought into the program and what I wrote while I was in the program, I had enough for a collection. So I started shopping this out in December of 2018, and I sent it to probably 30 different venues, and about 23, 24 of them rejected it. Um, I actually... When I got Sibling Rivalry, maybe I could have left it out there longer, but I didn't. I just canceled, like, the last four places that were considering it. I just withdrew. I sent it to Sibling Rivalry because they have published queer poetry that I've respected for the years I've been aware of queer poetry. And also because they have this wonderful reveal they do where they make a little video. I am a person of nostalgia and sentiment, um, for better or for worse. And that video always tugged at my heartstrings, and I thought... I want to be in one of those videos. I literally, about three years before I ever submitted this, had seen those videos and thought, I want that one day. Never thought that about any specific thing related to poetry before. I literally, all I thought was, I want to be in one of those videos. And so I submitted the sibling rivalry because I'm like, I respect them and we'll see what happens. And I got an email from Brian Borland, the publisher, that said... Congratulations, you're a finalist. We have some questions about your manuscript. Can you do a call on Friday at 1 p.m.? I said, sure. I'm supposed to be in a craft talk at that time, but I can step out, I guess, for 20 minutes to answer your questions. The craft talk, interestingly enough, was with Jericho Brand and all, and Rian Almokar Scott. He was the fiction person. A room of all of our professors and all the fiction and all the poetry students are sitting in our big classroom listening to Jericho and Rian on Alma Corscott and asking them questions. And I'm like, oh, it's 1.30, I got to step out. So I step out and Brian asked me, I don't remember what he asked me. He asked me maybe three questions and then said, just so you know, that was kind of a ruse. There weren't really any questions that could have disqualified you. We've decided to accept your manuscript. And I started bawling and had to pull myself together. And we talked for maybe five more minutes. And then I went back in the room, like sort of hyperventilating and dry heaving. And one of my friends looked at me and said, what's wrong? And I passed him a note. And said, Sibla Wyvery Press. And then they looked and they were like, what? And then I said, I got a deal. And they almost started crying. And that was the rest of it. So it's a sweet story. Um, and Sibla Wyvery Press, I don't know what everybody's experience is, but they've been wonderful to work with. I met, but I feel like they're family now. They have shepherded me, shepherded me through this process with a lot of care and love and patience, I'm sure. Because <laughs> I have everyone to know everything. And I think about a lot of things. So... They have been very patient with me, and I, I've really enjoyed it. I love this story also because Rion is one of Hema's clients for Jack Jones. Oh, okay. Um, so it's like we're everywhere. We're we infiltrating are everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I do want to know what advice you have 
or poets. Just broadly? Someone else who just feels like they have this fire inside, which I think is kind of like what it takes. Like, What should they do with that desire to tell a story that you had? Yeah. I honestly think that what I've been harping on, I guess, through this conversation with you is, is key. I don't know if I would have come to it myself. What I am so grateful for my personal experience for is that I can now mentor people in this way, if possible. What you've got to do is write and connect, write and connect. I don't know how to do this any other way. You've got to write all the time. Oh, you've also got to read all the time. It doesn't work or make sense in a way to write in in a vacuum. You've got to know what other people are saying and thinking. It's inspirational. It's challenging. Because you know that feeling when you read what somebody else wrote and you're like, damn, I wish I wrote that. And that sort of like I'm a teeny bit jealous, but I'm also like, damn, props. Or that, that other feeling when somebody wrote something and you're like, fuck you. Why are you telling my story? And you throw the book across the room because and you're like, I've got to pick it back up again because they are so right. And this is fire. You need that in your world. So you get that from writing, you get that from books, but you also get that from connecting with others like you. And even if it's not just poets, it's got to be writers. You've got to immerse yourself in writing community, which is why I fell in love with L.A. Because they're really the folks I met from David Francis to you, to Irene, to to Victoria, to Charles. I mean, all of them were like, hey, we are writers in this community. If you need stuff, come ask, come talk. We do things for each other. We build each other when we can. I can't prove that's true across Los Angeles, but y'all curated real well who I got to meet. And I am sure if I pick up the phone or send an email to Raina, as busy as she probably is writing books and having kids and from Instagram seeming curating the best garden in the universe. I mean, so my advice is write and connect. Don't try to write just in your house all by yourself because this is hard and thankless a lot of the time. People don't all inherently understand the worth of Amanda's story or Juby's story, writing as a passion or an occupation. So you need people to support you and reinforce that what you're doing is worth it, if nothing else. But also, you need your writing critique. You don't get better if you're unwilling to share your writing. You just don't. I don't know how people would do that. So write and connect, write and connect. That is my advice to everyone. Find your group of people that you can trust to care more about your writing than their impression of what writing should be. Because that's the other thing. There are a lot of people out there who don't workshop well. And by I mean, there are people who write what they want to write and they think things should look like what they want to write. And so they will try to put their print on your poem. Not consciously, I don't even think, but you'll get a critique from them where you're like, but I'm not trying to write what you're trying to write. And then there are people who will try to understand what you're trying to do and help you do that better and who you want. And so you've got it. It will be fits and starts. You may have some false starts, but you've got to curate your writing community and find the people who are going to support you and encourage you and tell you the hard things you need to hear. That has been so valuable for me. And that's what I would recommend. I saw the cover. Oh my God, the cover. <laughs> Do you love it? I adore the cover. I adore the cover. And it's, it's funny. So beautiful. It is. It's funny because I'm evidently, the universe works in, as my mother would say, mysterious ways because I wanted a different artwork for the cover and that person turned me down. They said, I think my poetry matched 
their art, which is their prerogative. I hold no ill will. Their art's still wonderful. But I was dejected at the time. And, and then I was like, I redoubled my efforts and I came across this photographer on Instagram and I was checking out his work and this one stunned me. It stopped me in my tracks. I was like, the title of my book is Original Kink and that has layers. And this photo comes as close to recognizing and embracing and epitomizing those layers of kink and of original as I think I could achieve in one photo. And so I adored it and reached out to the photographer. And to his credit, he was so overjoyed that somebody wanted to use it. He let me use it. And he also said that because I asked him, because I cared about what the model thought, the model was happy to be on the cover. I don't think the model cares as much about my poetry but he thinks it's cool he'll be on the cover of a poetry book. He loves this photograph because it's actually his Instagram profile photo. So it was just all the things I needed to be. I, when I was looking for a cover, had in the back of my mind uh, a book by Essex Hempel, the late Essex Hempel, who died of AIDS in the mid-90s and who was a beacon to many black gay men coming up at that time. And he wrote a poetry collection called Ceremonies that didn't have that cover, but it had the silhouette of a nude black man on the cover. And I've always thought if I wrote a collection, I would not be embarrassed to do that. And so I would have chosen better, not better. I would have chosen different artwork if that was what had inspired me. But this photo just grabbed me and wouldn't let go. And then I showed it to Paolo, my husband, and he was like, yes, absolutely yes. And I haven't shown it to anybody, including you, hasn't been like, wow, yes. Even Michelle, to be. I showed it. I'm glad y'all think so. I'm glad y'all think so. There was a little, you know, that voice inside that when, especially when you come from not the perspective of power, don't need to break down who's power now. If you want to have that conversation, we can, but we know who we're talking about. How you start to self-center yourself and say, people won't like this. I better pull back. I almost, there was, there was a split second where I was like, this is too in people's faces. People are going to judge, prejudge my poetry because there's a naked black man. <laughs> of my collection. And I had to check myself and say, but this fits. You intuitively feel this fits. You can only be yourself. Let that other stuff go and do serve the poems. If this is what the book needs, this is what the book needs. And there is no inherent lack of beauty in that photo. So I'm excited. Go with your intuition. I tell people that I just had that conversation with Karen because at least it's like, I feel like if you go with your intuition, it ends up like not being right, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> you you're like well I went with my intuition and it was wrong and I'm gonna learn but yeah. when you don't go with the intuition and it ends up being wrong yeah you're kicking yourself forever because you knew better and you didn't follow it exactly so, uh, I'm thrilled to hear that Thank I you. want so this book comes out in October of this year mm -hmm. tell me I'm sure you're freaking out a little bit about that um launching yes. having a book launch in October which is like a month before before the election also, and like, are we going to be in our house or out of our house? How does that feel? I am coming more to terms with a reality where I think we're absolutely going to be in our house. I'm at peace with that. I'm trying to make peace with the fact that the book launch I dreamed of, the party that I asked, as a matter of fact, I was going to try to have my official launch in Los Angeles with Chiwan and Bridget and Doug and F. Douglas Brown, 
that won't happen in person. I don't think we're going to be there as a nation in October. And the point of the show is not for me to state my politics, but we haven't had the national leadership we need around this pandemic to have any reasonable hope that by October, things will be in a situation where we'll be comfortable meeting in person. It's been hard to swallow. I, I feel more, I feel like I have the benefit of we've been in this for months. People are trained now to expect this. I feel really um, something like regret or sadness for folks who had debut books in March and April, who had these tours planned and these big plans that got shut down before we all knew what was happening or while we were in terror phase. Now, I wouldn't say our worst fears have come true, but now we've seen the scope of it and we're like, look, reality is I, I'm just not going to be able to do an in-person book tour. That's not how this is going to get out there. I'm going to have to make the most of what online experiences I have. And it's not the same, but I have also learned through doing a couple of them that online readings aren't as, for lack of a better word, dry as I thought they were going to be. You can connect with people online. Circling back to where we started talking to, I have felt some real feeling coming from people doing an online reading. And I love reading, which Dave Thomas instilled in me. I liked reading before that, but with his tools, it became something that was almost as important as the poem I had written and revised on the page. How am I bringing that to life for you? How am I interpreting that? I'm not an actor. But I feel like the reading of the poem is almost as important. And I say all that because feedback from the audience is important. And I can get that online. I didn't know I could. And I'm happy to find that I can. So I'm still scared. I'm less scared about this book, though, because honestly, I will give it away if I have to, because I get some copies. It is odd coming out at this particular time in this environment. I'm more scared about things of like, how does this play out? When is the other side of this pandemic? And what happens the day after election day? Because there are any number of scenarios and I almost don't like speaking some of them out loud. And then I wonder also if as a poet I'm doing this, there is a part of me that feels like donating is, is a lot. And there's a part of me that feels like being a poet who writes political poems and people have various thoughts and opinions about that. I am unapologetically political in my poems. There's a part of me that feels like that's the work. But then there's a part of me that wants to be out on the ground, marching and, and showing up at city council meetings and advocating. Um, but I don't have only myself to think of. I have my in-laws to think of. And I am reluctant to go into too many spaces right now. So mess in my head, I guess. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's yeah. kind of how, how so many of us are feeling. And I think it also goes back to community. Like you yeah. have this community, you have these connections and like, we're all going to do our best to yeah. make sure that this is the most engaging book launch that it could possibly be. And I've seen you read, and I've seen Bridget read, and I've seen Chawan read and Doug on virtual events. And you're right, like there is a potential to connect. Yeah. And I think so much of that is how you present the work. I feel as if I want to read the first poem in the collection, which I believe you've heard before. It'd probably be new to a lot of the people listening to the podcast. That's peacocking. Part of the reason I love this poem, it's weird when you say you love your own poems, but I kind of love some of them. Like your children. All right, right? I gave birth to these, so yes. I asked um, another poet named Neil Aitken to sort of review my collection for me and, 
and helped me edit it. And when he opened the collection and read this, he told me that he read the entire collection and then went back to this first poem. And next to it in his notes, when he sent me his handwritten notes, he had written, this is the thesis statement. And that's how I feel about it. So I feel like this sort of presents the challenge. Okay, so this poem is called Peacock. You a boy, right? It's this silly game I play with myself, scavenging for scraps of conversation out of context, like peacocks in the Arctic, or tenderness expressed in baritone. And here, in this department store, like every other, I'd found it, a single word, sharp and swift to Fisher. Boy. Perhaps the boy had stared too long at the man behind the cosmetics counter, gothic arches penciled in where eyebrows once grew. Perhaps the boy had lingered, longing, lusting, fingered the fabric of some skirt or blouse as the man I can't imagine is his father, whisked him through the missus section. This boy, broken, his stride, his spirit. While some woman I can only imagine the boy called mother guided her gaze toward anywhere but this moment. She's long-seated hope for something soft in the boy. I wish I didn't know the rest of his story. How butterflies won't so much settle in a boy's belly as slit their own throats for fear of flamboyance. How a boy must fashion his fists into ciphers for touch. How quick we are to teach a boy to cradle his hurt in his hands and preen. Jimmy Ariola Headley. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I love you, mean it. I'm love you too. Yes. Pen America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the emerging voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. 
This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.